Well, thank you very much, everybody, for coming along. In section four of Seamus Heaney's Station Island sequence, Heaney has a pointed exchange with the man of the cloth, a young priest who has sweated masses as an overseas missionary in some steamy jungle. The poet can't picture this holy mascot in such an alien landscape, preferring to think of him on his bicycle, performing domestic duties closer to home, visiting neighbors, drinking tea and praising homemade bread is Heaney's gently sarcastic description. To which the priest replies, what are you doing here but the same thing? Questioning the motivation behind Heaney's pilgrimage, yes, but also, I think, accusing the poet of offering similar consolations and absolutions in the shape of poems. 500 years after Martin Luther supposedly nailed his treatise to the door of All Saints Church in Wittenberg, and in the form of complaints against poetry's contemporary indulgences and reassertions of its enduring values, I offer my own 95 theses to the floor. One, subtlety is the watchword. Two, but this person's cat's whisker is another person's sledgehammer. This person's understatement, another's foghorn. So here's the key question. Who are you writing for? If the answer is myself, you're fibbing. And fibbing to yourself, which is the most deceitful of all deceptions. You write because you want to be read. Let's get that out in the open and we can all move forward together. Three, I'm not going to read the numbers out every time. <laughs> to write only in the way that others want to read is to sell out. But to write only in the way that you want to write is to disengage. To manage both is the requirement. I'm talking about finding the equilux between writer and reader. When the amount of daylight in a poem, that which is clear, and the amount of night time in a poem, that which must be imagined or figured, corresponds. It means taking risks. Risking sentimentality, for example. For example, in the last lines of Yusef Komenyaka's much anthologized poem, Facing It, where the poet, a former reporter in the Vietnam War, stares into the dark depths of the Vietnam Veterans Memorial and concludes, in the black mirror, a woman's trying to erase names. No, she's brushing a boy's hair. Poetry occurs at the dew point where difficulty meets understanding or where considered thought condenses into considered language. Poetry exists in some optimal zone between the obscure and the obvious, between the pretentious and the prosaic, between the highfalutin and the facile. I'm not saying that whatever falls outside that zone isn't poetry at all. Even if that's what I happen to believe privately, I'm not saying it. And as a zone, as well as having a conceptual dimension, 
it has a geographical one. Be internationalist by all means, but run the risk of dilution. Stay local by all means, but be an importer. Otherwise, you might think that you're plowing your own furrow when actually you're digging your own grave. If it helps, think of poetry as the semiconductor of language, regulating both flow and restraint. Poetry can provide a refuge for those who wish to write without the pressures of commercial interference or the intrusions of celebrity or any of the compromises associated with public engagement. But obscure poets can't then complain, as they sometimes complain, about a lack of interest in their work. Listen, if you're a poet, you're already obscure. If you're an obscure poet, you're operating somewhere beyond the orbit of Pluto. Being culturally constructed and therefore beyond an individual's control, that boundary between difficulty and understanding changes through time as well as space. We can't write for posterity or be the actuaries of our own work because we've no idea in which direction taste will shift or where poems will stand in relation to it. Neither can we rely on our spouses or descendants to catalogue our archives or laminate our reputations. Irony was probably the guiding force behind this piece of London graffiti, but the intention is undermined by an underlying veracity. Blake's a handy reference point for those students of mine who claim future readers will recognize their talents even if I don't. Though truth is, it's usually a hedge position they've taken up after a profit warning on their current business model. 14. Helen Vendler has been one of our best contemporary critics because, by and large, she's on the side of the makers rather than the dismantlers. But what did Helen Vendler mean when she said at the end of an essay on John Ashbery that accessibility needs to be dropped from the American vocabulary of aesthetic judgment if we are not to appear fools in the eyes of the world? Actually, I know what she meant, because in the sentence preceding it, she argued via the examples of Malame, Eliot, Moore, Miwash and Ashbury, that no matter how alien the content or how elusive the lines, readers flock to the poems. I could contest the definition of flock or argue that by having readers flock to them, those poets must be accessible or that all poems by their very nature are alien or elusive to some degree, or I could call in the number crunches to dispute the figures. But let me put it this way instead. If I were choosing which side of the argument to defend, I think it would be far easier to point to the large number of truly alien and elusive poets to whom readers have not only failed to flock, but from whom they have actually fled or to name drop genuinely accessible writers. Chaucer, Milton, Wordsworth, Hardy, Plath, Bishop, Heaney, Harrison, etc., whose evaluators 
and adjudicators are only rarely considered fools. Accessibility in the Wendler context is a byword for popularity, which by extension becomes shorthand for dumbing down. I see the connective logic, and yet, as a citizen of the world, I know that millions of really smart people go to the cinema, to art galleries, to museums, and to concerts. Millions buy literature, but not poetry. If people flock to Malame, what exorbitant verb shall we assign to the manner by which people congregate around Hilary Mantel, or will attend the most recent Hockney exhibition? I'm not an apologist for the superficial. Adrian Mitchell's contention that most people ignore most poetry because most poetry ignores most people was true up to a point, but would have carried more clout coming from a Hugo Williams or a Salima Hill or a Les Murray. Hospitable and accommodating poets who also trust the imaginative and intellectual capabilities of a potential readership. I'm only an occasional visitor to this platform, but a frequent teacher. And in the classroom environment, fewer things have muddled the minds of creative writing students, those who read criticism anyway, than the intentional fallacy. The notion that an author's objective can never be properly realized in the mind of the reader. It leads some students to throw away their pens in despondency and others to throw down any old tripe onto the page on the basis that whatever they write will be misinterpreted. But while it would be naive to assume that every aspect and angle of a poem can be safely couriered between reader and writer, it's defeatist to think that the greater or necessary part cannot. How do I know the intentional fallacy is itself a fallacy? Because when the critics of the new criticism wrote about it, I understood it. Ambiguity, being a kissing cousin of intentional fallacy, is also a much misunderstood and abused concept in poetry. It's like ambiguous, says Scarlett in the creator writing class responding to the last line of Josh's poem, which he doesn't understand. Yeah, agrees Josh. I was doing like ambiguity there, <laughs> he confirms, largely on the basis that he doesn't understand it either. Or, it's very meta, they might chorus. Wrong. Whatever its dictionary definition of inexactness, Ambiguity is a controlled technique in poetry, being the managed balancing of two or more describable positions. Example, the last line of Hardy's Snow in the Suburbs, and we take him in. Receiving the cat into the house, he means. And he also means perceiving the situation. He means them both simultaneously and intentionally. As for meta, i.e. more consciously and conspicuously of itself, if I hear one more student saying something is very meta, I'm going to take a bite out of the desk. 
to the supposition that a certain player couldn't be offside during a match because he wasn't interfering with play, manager Brian Clough is alleged to have retorted, if he isn't interfering with play, what's he doing on the pitch? <laughs> For player, read language. For pitch, read poem. QED. 24. Of the many historical and ongoing vexations associated with the art, poetry's very identity is one of its most agonizing conditions. Passing from poeticia realismus to poetry theories of, the 1965 Princeton Encyclopedia of Poetry and Poetics I bought from a library sale in 1986 to try and figure out what the hell I was doing had no entry for poetry. It's a situation its editors have since addressed, but to no resounding conclusion. More courageously, Edward Hersher's excellent A Poet's Glossary has a stab at definition, which begins an inexplicable, though not incomprehensible event in language. That submission will extend to another three pages but the bracketed, though not incomprehensible, spoke to me personally. Poetry is shaded language. On many examples of terrain cartography, hills and mountains are shown with shade to their southeastern slopes, as if light were emanating from the top left-hand corner of the map, perhaps taking its bearings from printed matter, given that in reading, Northwest to southeast is the usual direction of travel. Forgetting for now that light rarely originates from that direction in the northern hemisphere, the shading exists as a visual subtext indicative of perspective. Similarly, in a poem, the shadows of chosen words fall in a particular direction, suggesting an angle or view. It's a form of hatchering, as in hatchering distinct with threads of shadow in Norman Nicholson's poem, Gathering Sticks on Sunday. And moon and earth will stare at one another like the cold yellow skulls of child and mother. It ends, shading language in the direction of Emerson's statement, the end of the human race will be that it will die of civilization. What other physical properties can help with identification? Comparing the density of a poem with the density of prose via the number of rare or unusual or interesting words or phrases per page might not be enough to highlight a quantifiable difference between the two, but let's still consider the specific gravity of a piece of writing as a possible indicator of its poetic quiddities and credentials. Let's locate it and celebrate it in Composed Underneath Westminster Bridge, Denise Riley's bicentennial and parallax response to Wordsworth's Petrarchan sonnet, an uncharacteristically off-message urban moment from William given his more usual role as Poetry's Countryside Alliance spokesperson. Riley's reverse perspective from below the bridge 
might be a subtle acknowledgement of Dorothy's unacknowledged role in the original poem, but it's the magnificent muddy slurp and viscosity I'm interested in here, its thickness of diction. Broad gravel barges shove the drift, each wake thwacks the stone steps, a rearing tugboat streaked past moorhens dabbing floss, spun pinkish beaked. Peanuts in caramelised burnt chocolate bake through syrupy air. Above, fried onions cake. Pigeons on steel-eyed dates neck wrestled, peaked, oblivious to their squabs that whined and squeaked in iron-ringed nests, nursed in high struts. Opaque brown particles swarm churning through the tide. That navy hoop of cormorant can compose a counter to this shield, eagles splayed wide, gold martlets on the bridge's side. It glows while through the Odenil flaked arches slide the boats Burt Pryor and the Eleanor Rose. Staying with definitions, if we describe the poem as a snapshot, which we occasionally do, especially the shorter poem, perhaps to distinguish it from something more cinematic, which might be the visual equivalent of the novel. If we associate the poem with the snapshot, possibly because it's often Polaroid in shape and size, or cross-sectional in its presentation, then let's agree that it isn't necessarily the subject matter which is caught in time, but the moment of writing. The hairs on the back of the neck rise on reading Hughes's The Thought Fox, not because we're re-witnessing the animal entering the frame, but because we're witnessing the poet framing the act of framing the animal entering the frame. The moment of an artist gazing amazed at a work that points at him amazed, as he says in Full Moon and Little Frida. It's creativity, self-consciousness that's been captured and preserved. Another reason the snapshot an analogy might be opposite is in relation to that satisfying clunk we recognize when two or more ideas click. Example, Ian Hamilton Finlay's sculptural poem, Bring Back the Birch when a reactionary request for the reintroduction of corporal punishment is ironically fused with an environmental appeal for the re-establishment of a tree species, where grove and grave are simultaneously monumentalized. 30. I'm moving on from definitions to substance and to the question of whether poetry has stopped delivering the goods or supplying its legal high. Sometimes you pay the dealer only to be given the chemical equation rather than the product itself. Too many Walter Whites out there peddling the science when what we really crave is the hit. Or, as Heaney put it, you wanted to touch you at the melting point between the breastbone and the beginning of the solar plexus. You want something sweetening 
and at the same time something unexpected, something that has come through constraint into felicity. If the drugs analogy doesn't please, let me wonder instead if poetry has stopped being the expo with its public interface between innovators and consumers, with its aisles and stalls, bringing its fair to the fair, and become instead the conference with poets as lanyarded delegates in closed sessions, professionals and experts in dialogue with co-workers and associates only. It's generally agreed that at some point in history, the novel replaced the poem as the principal and most popular form of literature. And it's difficult to envisage a reversal, given poetry's sulky introspection since that time. Broadly speaking, the contemporary novel operates through an unspoken reciprocity, offering readers the opportunity to engage without requiring them to unscramble an encrypted code. In a recent wide-ranging Ipsos Mori poll conducted on behalf of the Royal Society of Literature, 90% of people reported that they had read a novel in the last six months. An encouraging statistic for authors, publishers, booksellers, and anyone who believes that reading is a good thing. But only 11% of respondents had read any poetry. Roughly the same number who'd read a self-help book. Some nights I lie awake, worrying that they are, in fact, the same people. <laughs> Peter Porter's observation that poetry can either be language lit up by life, or life lit up by language, now seems a generous, even-handed, and optimistic assessment, probably penned before the wide-scale emergence of poetry as language not so much illuminated by, but subjected to some form of X-ray or CAT scan. In a recent interview to promote his compilation triptych collection, No Art, the American poet Ben Lerner seems to acknowledge or confirm such a predicament. Across those three volumes, Lerner says, he's dealing with topics such as univocalism versus heteroglossia, the impossibility of the second-person pronoun, the repurposing of language, a resistance to closed readings, avant-garde proceduralism, and ironic detachment. It's only really in the final poem of the book that Lerner gestures towards what he describes as a calling for the possibility of feeling in poetry, daringly flirting with vintage or discontinued emotions. In contrast, for example, with the stated subject matter of one of Lerner's students, Ocean Vuong, who according to the blurb on the back of his debut collection, Night Sky with Exit Wounds, writes about the most profound subjects, love and loss, conflict, grief, memory and desire. It allows for a formal and confident distinction to be made, I think, between those poems whose critical and theoretical components are implied, and those whose critical and theoretical components are not only explicit, but entire, 
Poetry as Criticism and Theory. 39. Invent a measuring device for the above, a kind of breathalyzer test that registers critical parts per thousand. Keep blowing, keep blowing, the light's gone red, you're over the accepted limit, I'm going to have to ask you to step outside the vehicle. I'm going to have to ask you for your license. The doomsday clock, that hypothetical chronometer which gauges the perceived likelihood of planetary catastrophe, whose hands, the last time I checked, which was admittedly before the American task force steamed towards the Korean peninsula and the NHS computer network succumbed to a paralyzing virus, is currently set at two and a half minutes to midnight. Interactive exam question. Onto the face of a clock, anticipating the doomsday scenario in which all the poets and all the critics in the world are exactly the same people, draw the current position of the hands. Just to be clear, I'm not mounting some shop floor protest on behalf of the Poets' Union. Without criticism, there is no poetry. If poetry is the egg, then criticism can either be the chick that hatches from it or the hen that laid it. And in the Venn diagram of manufacturers and commentariat, a shadowed area of overlap is an inevitable and healthy thing. But beware complete occlusion, the darkness occasioned by total obscuration, the oblivion brought about by 100% self-absorption. Or we could further divide these two Venn diagram cells, a procedure which might lead to a Jahari window approach, as it would be described by that aforementioned 10% of society frequenting the personal development section of Waterstones, or to a Rumsfeldian classification of poetry. 44, Rumsfeldianism. Let's start with the known knowns. Poems whose text is immediately comprehensible and whose meaning is in direct relation and proportion to it. Poetry of thribbish artlessness, requiring little effort and bringing scant reward. When Geoffrey Hill made reference to a cult of simple-mindedness to have emerged in the 60s and 70s, it was the purveyors of known knowns he was presumably at pains to distance himself from. Into the known unknowns pigeonhole, we might place large chunks of Eliot, for example. That is to say, we can all read and make sense of a line like, an old white horse galloped away in the meadow. And certain sections of four quartets, for example, the opening lines of Burnt Norton, have a nursery rhyme or even popular song simplicity to them. Yet for all the surface comprehensibility, the philosophical thinking underpinning the poetry remains remote, aloof, perhaps even ineffable. Donald Rumsfeld didn't actually get into the territory of the unknown knowns, but I'm proposing John Ashbury as my band leader in this category. That's because the fragmented and sabotaged cortex of his poems, certainly in his later work, is usually as intentionally unfollowable 
as it is unfathomable. And yet the thinking behind it, signifier over signified, language as an unsatisfactory, unreliable, and even disreputable tool when it comes to the analysis, perception, and reflection of actual experience, etc., etc., all that is relatively well signposted and understood. And finally, the unknown unknowns, the irresolvable linguistic equations of those out-and-out -out poetic experiments, baffling to both reader and writer alike. I've mentioned John Ashbury a couple of times already, and we'll mention him again as a special case, given how he's not so much cornered the market for unpredictability in contemporary poetry, but brokered some form of international free trade agreement. Unexpectedness is what we expect from Ashbury. His principal strategy in recent years being deviation from the linear, a strategy that succeeds because his fragments are so surreptitiously eavesdropped, so convincingly reproduced, and so entertainingly juxtaposed. Unfortunately, his virtuoso modus operandi has been misheard by others as a clarion call for the abdication of logic and the abandonment of sense across the board. Many have noticed the truancy and mischievousness in Ashbury and confused it with the school rules. Conversely, it's a big mistake to characterize Ashbury as some kind of emperor in his new clothes, when in fact he's the tailor and dressmaker. The poem is you, he reminds us in the last line of paradoxes and oxymorons. We, his coat hangers and his dummies. Is it ever brave to write poems? I've seen this word on book blurbs, in reviews, in citations of works. Certainly some poets publish at great personal risk, but even for the likes of Mandelstam and Akmatova, doesn't manner always pull rank on matter in the end? Won't mode always be looking to upstage material? Isn't the poet's mind always cocked to the poem standing as a poem in relation to other poems? In poetry, isn't there always an element of dancing in front of the mirror? Aren't poets like the dewdrops in Yeats's The Sad Shepherd, always listening for the sound of their own dropping. Some poets have attempted to disguise their exhibitionism or imply modesty by representing themselves with the lowercase i. It worked for a day or two as a refreshing kind of self-effacement, allowing the poet to momentarily sidestep the role of wise sage and an important person. But pretty soon, it had the reverse effect, shouting, hey, hey, over here, look at me, over here, I'm the quiet one. First, try to be something, anything else, begins Laurie Moore in How to Be a Writer. She's pre pretending to tell you about life choices, but she's really telling you about writing. She's talking about fiction, but she's also talking about poetry. And then she's also talking about poetry, but she's really talking 
about literature. You yourself are not literature, she's saying. Even the most candid confessional poets, the Lowell of Life Studies, the Plath of Ariel, the Hopkins of the so-called terrible sonnets, the Pearl poet recounting his dream, if his dream is what it was, we don't appreciate them because their soul-searching was so thorough, but because their illusions were so accomplished, their portrayals so convincing, their puppetry so lifelike. So when Craig Rain says, poetry is the battle against the prompter, which can only give you someone else's lines, he isn't suggesting that an individual's unmediated thoughts are poetic of themselves, no matter how unique. And he certainly isn't aligning himself with Allen Ginsberg's description of the poet as a stenographer of the mind, with its implication that any and every thought can be transferred unedited straight onto the page. 54. Sometimes in the appraisal of poetry, when judging competitions, for instance, or when considering applications for courses via sample poems, I've heard colleagues bring up the issue of trust. I don't trust this poem, someone might say at a grading meeting, or how trustworthy is this piece? It happens in situations where there's nothing inherently measurable about the work to hand, and no calibration system beyond educated guesswork. The res recent resurgence of the spoken word scene is sometimes explained as a reaction to these opacities and obscurities in literary poetry. Performance poetry in that version of events is a breath of fresh air, sincere in its application, honest in its ambitions, and happy to make itself vulnerable in front of a live audience rather than hide away behind the fortifications of a book cover. Its detractors disagree, arguing that a poem in search of immediate responses and instant gratification is even less trustworthy and fails the poetic polygraph test by virtue of its neediness. About 10 years ago, I thought I'd noticed a growing rapprochement between the two camps but certain irreconcilable differences persist, it would seem. On that same subject, James Fenton once commented how a group of aspiring poets he knew defined their practice through entirely negative characteristics. No rhyme, no meter, and no form other than open form, which Fenton clarifies as no form at all. He might have also added, no metaphor, no narrative, and no subject matter to this litany of poetic allergies and intolerances, though his larger point was in relation to the poetry reading as an event, and how writing for the eye rather than the ear hasn't discouraged page-bound poets from giving public performances of their work despite having nothing to perform. These are poets who put themselves through the agony of standing in front of an audience reading words which were specifically designed not to be read out, Fenton comments, and consequently put their audience through the same agonies as well. And those who write without respecting the importance of sound 
will fall in with Frost's description of Carl Sandburg as the kind of writer who had everything to gain and nothing to lose by being translated into another language. The kind of atonal or clothiered poet for whom something gets lost in the original, as they say. All those points about the acoustic and out loud importance of poetry are true and well made. Yet we shouldn't deny the special properties of writing on the page. Even in its appeal to memory, often thought of as the preserve of spoken or oral poetry. Like recognising the silhouettes of birds on the wing against a featureless sky, the patterns and shapes of poems on the page post-Caxton have become memorial mechanisms in their own right. So when Ed Hirsch describes trying to recall Frost's desert places while driving through a snowstorm, he says, I could see the shapely stanzas unscrolling. John Fuller is saying something similar when he talks about the glamour of the page. Anything else just being whispers on the wind. And even though he refers to the inner ear and Hirsch to the inner eye, they're both acknowledging that poetry presented as an entirely visual phenomenon and received in silence has its own unique pleasures. Added to which, analyzing the noises a poem makes can lead us into the realm of the pseudo-scientific, often via a form of retrospective justification. Take Ian Crichton Smith's poem, Neighbor, which begins, Build me a bridge over the stream to, buy, to my neighbor's house, where he is standing in dungarees in the fresh morning, about which Carol Rumens in her poem of the week slot in The Guardian comments, the sound of small waters threading over pebbles is captured in the ah and re sounds of the first quatrain. I regret choosing an example from a column that regularly provides a highly effective arbitration service between specialist texts and non-specialist readers and from such a thoughtful critic. But her assessment in this case seems only correct in hindsight, when what we're really curious about are the decisions the poet made at the time of composition. Because isn't this the kind of interpretation that drives tentative or novice readers not only to despair, but to disbelief. I thought ah and re were the sounds of small waters threading over pebbles, said reader will complain, when said syllables turn up in another poem, but this time representing a growling machine gun, or the noise of a dry wind in a parched desert with nary a stream for a thousand square miles. The internet may have undermined the printed page as the automatic location for poetry, but the page remains a high-value plot or sought-after limelight, or as Maurice Reardon has termed it, a coveted space. Not only in terms of prestige and the fact that it implies a degree of editorial regulation that the internet occasionally short-circuits, but in terms of its suitability as a physical, two-dimensional plane for the reception of thoughts projected as language, it's still a comfortable fit. 
Poetry in its written guise also allows us to play the form and content game. Always my favourite bit at school, still good value in the workshop. The poem is tall and thin because it's about a chimney stack. The poem is presented in half-rhyme couplets because it's about two incongruous ideologies struggling to achieve harmony with each other. Put like that, it shouldn't be difficult to choose a form that represents a poem's intentions. But as Terry Eagleton points out, poems often operate by multiple systems, sometimes in concert, sometimes in contradiction. His example is Empson's quarrel with this famous quatrain in Gray's Elegy written in a country churchyard. Lamenting, by elaborate metaphor, faithful rhythm and manicured rhyme, how human potential is sometimes overlooked or goes unfulfilled. Full many a gem of purest ray serene, the dark, unfathomed caves of ocean bear. Full many a flower is born to blush unseen and waste its sweetness on the desert air. Eagleton notes how the elegance of the verse dignifies this dire situation in a way that makes us reluctant to see it altered. Eagleton is exposing a kind of inadvertent hypocrisy at work. And even though I wouldn't go anywhere as near as that with my own example, I've always felt a similar kind of contradiction in relation to the first stanza of Auden's A Summer Night. Out on the lawn I lie in bed, vaguer conspicuous overhead in the windless nights of June, as congregated leaves complete their day's activity, my feet point to the rising moon. In what's generally accepted to be a successful opening to a successful poem, the grammatical systems appear to be running smoothly, ditto the system of sounds and beats, and plenty of other subsystems as well, I dare say. But given the poet's apparent determination to paint a very clear, draftsman-like picture, wouldn't it have been more effective to, array, effective to arrange the stanza in accordance with the physical architecture of the scene he describes? By which I mean, if a spatially mimetic system were to operate, which is one of poetry's privileges, then as a representation of the geometry of the universe as seen from the human perspective, we could expect Vega to be found at the top of the poem and bed to be positioned below overhead. By the same logic, feet would be positioned beneath the rising moon and a pathetic descent from the planetary body to the mundane and earthly appendage of the human foot would have saved the punchline till the end, where punchlines tend to be most effective. Such an arrangement would have also served to remind us, via a conclu concluding pun, that it's the poetic foot as well as the physiological one that addresses the moon. Moreover, if Auden had managed to put his feet on the ground, so to speak, would have allowed him to physicalize them as the comic protuberances they undoubtedly are, courtesy of that indented and therefore extended last line. 
I suppose it could be argued that the ostensible nonsense of the first line, being in bed on the lawn, something he occasionally did apparently, legitimizes the topsy-turvy arrangement of the stanza. But for all his eccentricities, Auden was a no-nonsense poet, and this was a no-nonsense occasion. The author recalling a spiritually significant or quasi-religious episode when for the first time in his life he knew exactly what it meant to love one's neighbor as oneself. Incidentally, given that the revelation took place on a fine night in June 1933 at the Downs School in Malvern, with Vega visible and a rising moon, a combination of maps, star charts and weather records would probably allow us not only to triangulate the exact date of the experience, but also tell us the direction the poet was facing at the time. That said, Auden was sitting down in his oblique prose account of the evening and lying down in the poem. So we should be careful when considering the piece as a faithful documentary testimony. I could never prove it, but I suspect rhyme has dictated the sequencing of ideas in a summer night. John Fuller suggests Christopher Smart's A Song to David as the template. And once a rhyme scheme has been decided upon, and once rhyme partnerships like June and Moon have come so obligingly to mind, everything else must fall in around. And because it deals in sound, open-ended and faux-critical claims, similar to those I mentioned earlier, are often made in relation to the function and effect of rhyme in poems. Undoubtedly, particular sounds in a particular order generate particular effects. But to my mind, rhyme serves two more blatant and less virtuous purposes. Firstly, and as far as the writer is concerned, it operates as a provocation on the every problem a potential opportunity basis. Rhyme is an obstacle to be overcome. It's a limitation requiring an ingenious and apparently effortless solution. Its second purpose, beyond offering an auditory mnemonic, which matters less now than it did in the era of oral poetry, is to impress the reader. That is, to demonstrate cleverness by ramping up the degree of difficulty by which an idea is executed. Rhyme is an act of escapology, in which thoughts must wriggle free from the bindings and fastenings of similar sounding words. Voila! Hey presto! Tada! is what rhyme says to the reader. I was in a tight corner there. Look how impressively I managed to manipulate my restrictions. Brevity is another hallmark of smartness the fleetness of a poem, its tight turning circle, its economy of language, the anything you can do, I can do quicker aspect of its character. Poetry is the art of saying in two words what is better said in ten, the late Brian Sewell is reported to have complained. And to disagree with Brian Sewell was always to be in the right. Brevity within a poem creates useful tensions. Opposing our instincts to embellish 
adorn and peacock by stripping back to a tooth and bone bare minimum, curling up into a fetal ball when confronted with an immeasurably large and expanding universe. And brevity not only within poems, but within collections too. Most books being an economic and geometrical convenience to which the writer has shaped his or her output, a productivity only increased since the advent of the word processor, a device which has circumvented the frictional drag of pen on paper that once allowed time for contemporaneous reflection. Judged in those terms, Christopher Reed's Katerina Brack is exemplary, being a slim volume both in name and nature. 39 printed pages, many of them printed with not very much at all. But I also commend it for its sleight of hand. The poems being a fictitious set of translations of a fictional Eastern European poet. A conceit which turns up the reverb on the poems and makes devious advantage out of poetry's inherent foreignness in relation to everyday language. Katerina Brack, being Martian in outlook, is also an object lesson in metaphor making. Metaphor being another form of brevity through the near instantaneous scheduling of ideas, another form of cleverness. Hence, a radio thinking aloud. Pale blue butterflies as detachable as earrings. A blister like a moonstone. A newborn baby like a little howling blood sausage. And the stairwell outside an apartment like the deepest, most superhumanly patient of ears. Some contend that poets have no business likening one thing to another and that to do so is just affectation and decoration. I say that all aspects of cognition and perception depend entirely upon comparison. 75. The problematic long poem isn't only problematic because of dwindling attention spans, but because most of the things it can do can be done better by the novel or the play or the boxed set. Program idea. A grand designs format in which poetry's equivalent of Kevin MacLeod follows the trials and tribulations of a poet about to embark on a composition of epic proportions. Over the course of the construction, we make frequent visits to the site to find the poem in various states of completion and the poet in a variety of moods. From the enthusiasm and energy of his initial outline sketches to days of spiritual exhaustion and creative bankruptcy, and the jeopardy moment before the ad break when the central load-bearing beam is found to be rotten. We revisit the monolithic pile a year after completion, with the author proud of his titanic achievement, but reluctant to talk about its final cost, and with a for sale sign at the front gate, but as yet no offers. Does poetry have a USP? Not really. I'd conclude, though the best I can offer is the line.
Be faithful to the line for a reason, or plot against it for a reason, but ignore it only to advertise your incompetence or ignorance. Some poets distance themselves from the idea of the line, seeing it as an imperial measure or colonial gesture, committing them to an unacceptable tradition. The conventional line ending in that scenario is a gilt frame or milled edge, redolent of historical power structures. So a truncated line that cuts against phrase or clause might be doing a radical job. And short lines are sometimes characterized as breaths, emphasizing the rhythms of respiration over those of rhetoric, favoring the individual over the institution. Here's Advent by Pulitzer Prize winner Ray Armantrout, a poet whose work I've become interested in, and not only because she sometimes stands next to me on alphabetically arranged shelves in bookshops and libraries. Occasionally associated with the language school of poetry, many of Armantrout's poems rarely expand beyond the most clenched or clipped lines, lines that imply a skeletal elementalism, or seem ephemeral and tremulous, hanging there like linguistic wind chimes. That said, such concision and terseness can run the risk of appearing coy, precious, even melodramatic or hammy, or as Craig Rain puts it, like the dying man in a movie trying to tell us where the treasure is buried. Short lines draw less attention to themselves when regulated by the flow of expression or the building blocks of sentences, but become conspicuous and even suspicious when their endings and breaks deviate from those administrating principles for no apparent reason. An example, R.S. Thomas, a normally scrupulous poet on the page, breaks the last lines of a marriage like this. Why? Amputating the penultimate line at the word no cuts against the natural cadence, squanders the opportunity of a partial rhyme between heavier and feather, denies the phrase of one sigh, the mimetic opportunity of existing in its own exhalation and letting the sigh extend into the blank space beyond and misplaces the emphasis in that final line to the point where the sigh overbalances rather than counterbalances the feather. Nevertheless, in both Armantrout and Thomas, and no matter the interpretation, something is at stake and at risk in the breaking of those lines, and the line as a unit of organization is honored, as is the poem as a system of staged intervals. So credit the line, and credit also its ghostly other half in that fallow margin between the end of the line and the edge of the page, in the bubble wrap protecting the delicate edges of the page from its, of the poem from its packaging. On a page, that gap is for your mental notes, a designed void where intention and interpretation can come to an understanding. 
If poetry is the writing between the lines, that writing often takes place in the measured space beyond them, which is why poems in newspapers and magazines are usually presented as cartouche or printed within their own display cabinets rather than bleeding out to the same border as the surrounding prose. Prose poems, especially those conforming to Parkinson's law, i.e. expanding to fill the space available, might be offered as evidence against the line as poetry's only defining property, and fair enough. But the prose poem is usually just that, i.e. poetry disguised as prose, pretending prose values rather than proving them. It is poetry in fancy dress, entertaining us with its masquerade, though never expecting for one minute we will be duped by the fakery. 85. I've been musing on the current situation of poetry, but what of its future? Nicholas Barker, in his book, Visible Voices, comparing the receiving surface of a stone steely with that of a papyrus leaf, writes, stone is indestructible and inscription on it permanent. Recent events in Palmyra, amongst other places, suggest otherwise just as Shelley's Ozymandias warns against notions of immortality. Yet the desire to make utterance endure, endures. Barker goes on to quote R.B. Parkinson et al., citing a caption inscribed in the Temple of Horus at Edfu, in which Ptolemy X is offering an inkwell to a group of deities credited with having caused memory to begin because they wrote. It ends. The air speaks with his forefathers when they have passed from the heart, a wonder of their excelling fingers so that friends can communicate when the sea is between them and one man can hear another without seeing him. In Morgan Freeman's voice, could be an advert for the next generation of iPhone, but it's an ancient description of the miraculous and magical nature of considered written material, and one that still holds good today. The urge to emphasize language at the ceremonial level and the everyday practicalities of producing text in a physical dimension have all contributed to our understanding of what poetry is and the characteristics by which we recognize it. Accordingly, we should expect the orthodoxies of poetry to develop not just in line with the vocabularies of its practitioners, but in accordance with whatever technologies are invented to store and convey it. So, is there a school of Twitter poets yet exchanging poems of not more than 140 characters as if they were the modern equivalent of tanker or haiku. Of course there is. It's already a tradition. And has anyone written the world's first poem using emojis only, as if they were modern, the modern-day equivalent of temple hieroglyphs? Yes, it's been done, and a good while ago. Just as the Snapchat poem is now well established. In fact, Snapchat that messaging service which delights in the ephemeral 
and with its insistence on perishability, might represent an unlikely opportunity for uniting the opposing forces of printed and performed poetry, given the way it delivers compact blocks of language as writing, but as writing which vaporizes instantly, like speech. And has a machine produced viable poetry yet? Actually, no, not that I'm aware of. At least, not the kind of poetry I'm advocating and celebrating, despite the fact that there's plenty of poetry writing software out there. One online customer review for such a package reads, it works a treat. Personally, I still prefer to write the poems myself, but hey, that's just me. Ninety-three, type your job title into the search box below to find out the likelihood that it could be automated within the next two decades, said the BBC website. I typed in the word poet. Nothing happened. Browse our full list of jobs was the next instruction. But between podiatrist and police community support officer. There was nothing and no one. I took this as an encouraging existential sign. If a, po if a computer doesn't recognize poets full stop, how can they be replaced? As I remarked earlier, we're an exceptionally insecure lot, unable even to give a convincing account of what it is we do. But pity the poor water and sewage plant operative, for example, currently at position 146 on the career extinction red list and with a 60% chance of imminent automation. Which leads me to these final thoughts. Since the advent of the digital camera and Photoshop, we're all photographers. And since the advent of the iPod, we're all DJs and all composers once we've downloaded the Sibelius software and all scriptwriters with final draft to nudge and prompters and all film directors as far as YouTube is concerned and all journalists according to the Huffington Post. The list goes on, but we're definitely not all poets, which I find astonishing given the apparent simplicity of the task. Prove you're not a robot, insists some secure websites, before allowing users to continue. Transposed into a literary context, metaphorically, metaphorically asking the same question of poems we encounter might at least give us confidence in filtering out the junk and the malware. Some poems don't pass the robot test because they weren't actually composed by algorithms or binary coding, but they might as well have been, either because they're mind-numbingly shallow or because they're inhumanly convoluted, gracelessly contrived. And the day a software package, or even a good mimic, can achieve that elusive but not illusory amalgamation of complexity and coherence, which the most convincing poetry aspires to, that's the day we can all pack up and go home. Thank you very much. <laughs>